Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Over the 200-plus year history of political parties in the U.S., something our founding fathers actually advised us against, the same parties have at different times stood for different sets of ideas. The Federalists, the Whigs, the National Republican Party, the Democrats, and others have all been made up of different coalitions at different times. We all know, for example, that Lincoln and his Republican Party were once the anti-slavery party. Oh, how that's changed. The modern Democratic Party really emerged with the New Deal Coalition, beginning in 1933 with FDR. It was an amalgam that was considered the core of American liberalism. It was anchored especially in ethno-religious constituencies, Catholics, Jews, African Americans, white Southerners, well-organized labor unions, urban machine politicians, progressive intellectuals, and populist farm groups. However, like all previous party coalitions, it would begin to splinter. It surprised many that elements of the once liberal base of the New Deal coalition would become a part of the Republican Party of Nixon and Reagan and Trump. The story of how this happened is really the story of our modern politics that begins in the 1970s. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, David Paul Kuhn. He's a writer and political analyst. He has served as the chief political writer for CBS News Online, a senior political writer for Politico, as well as chief political correspondent at Real Clear Politics. He's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and numerous other publications. He's the author of the political novel, What Makes It Worthy? And it is my pleasure to welcome David Paul Kuhn here to talk about his newest work, The Hard Hat Riot, Nixon, New York City, and the dawn of the working class revolution. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the central ideas of, of Hard Hat Riot is that part of the core constituency, the working class constituency of, of the Democratic Party, really started to move away from the Democrats in the 70s. How much of that, and, and, and you talk a lot about some of the specific events that happened, but in your view, how much of that really revolves around the issue of race and civil rights at that point in time? Well, one does not preclude the other. And a lot of this begins in the 60s, well, even earlier in the 50s with, to some extent, this early rumbling in some uh, divisions over how one views communism in post-war America. There's early rumbling there. Civil rights begins to happen to a greater extent in the, in the late 50s and obviously in the 60s and mid-60s to an uh, epic extent. And then into the, seven, into the late 60s, we have fissures that relate to, cult, to culture, class, and uh, most uh, tragically and most, in, a, in the greatest sense, captured perhaps in the Vietnam War itself. And it's, it's hard to, it, you know, the, the simplistic response is always that everything is raised, but the, if you just look at the Southern flip, the Southern flip being when it moved from the Democratic to the Republican Party, even that is not a, simply a story of race. If you look at when it moved, the peripheral South, example, Tennessee, these states moved first to the Republican Party in 1928, which was a cultural populism election. If, uh, to remind people, Al Smith, who was painted as a big city Catholic, connected to the Democratic machine against Herbert Hoover, who was at that time a hero. Uh, and, it, you know, issues of Rome, Romanism, <laughs> uh, issues of prohibition. It was very cultural issues. Republicans make the first inroads then. They make their greatest inroads in the South and truly flip it over directly over racial and racist politics, of course, yeah, as they take as Democrats take on the civil rights mantle in 48. 
but we don't see uh, a lot of this movement until also later. And it's, um, for example, uh, in simplify it in 1960, JFK, who runs really as a traditional FDR Democrat, uh, performs rather traditionally. And then by 19 and Nixon, who loses a close race to JFK in 60, uh, performs with college educated whites and, the, and blue collar whites, roughly along traditional norms. By 1972, uh, Nixon's made immense gains uh, and, uh, with the white working class, with blue collar whites, gains that he didn't even make in 1968, which was much closer to the racial politics. So it's very hard to separate one from the other. I will just give you some, one reason it's not as, it's far from sim, as simple as race is that, um, for example, uh, at the time, around 1970, seven in 10 whites and the plurality of blacks saw, quote, unquote, radical troublemakers. In that mind, that meant mainly students on campus, college-educated campus unrest, as, uh, as being motivated by... Um, uh, rather than being motivated by deeply felt beliefs in the injustice in society, they felt they were motivated by um, a, a, an effort to cause unrest. And we know this from polling at the time. And if you look at polling on views of uh, African-Americans by blue-collar whites and, or middle Americans or separate whites by class or just whites in general, look at views of black civil rights activists and campus white activists, which would often, as a shorthand, we'll call hippies, but that's simplistic. Uh, they were the blue. Uh, one thing, again, I, I point out in my book, and these, this data is in the notes because I don't want to bore readers, is that blue collar whites and all whites had a much worse view of campus activists, white campus hippies, as you might call them, or yippies at the time, than they did of black civil rights activists and dramatically worse view of white campus activists than they did of Hispanic or indigenous activists, what were then mainly Puerto Ricans and indigenous rights, Native American activists. So, it, the story of the de- of the loss of Democrats with blue collar whites to say it does not include race would be absurd, and to say it's largely or only about race is equally absurd. And I tried to tell the the fuller story with and talk about that in the context of you know what we heard at the time about Nixon's quote unquote Southern strategy and what Nixon was thinking about at the time. Yeah. So why don't we let me let me just quote Time Magazine here. Time Magazine writes read a, in 1969, much as they as the mainstream and leading our best media did in 2015-16 with when Donald Trump assumed the stage. 1969, the elite media rediscovers blue-collar whites. And in, at, and in 1970, it names uh, Time Magazine, then the most influential magazine in the country, names its person of the year, the middle American. And uh, when Time then discovers, years later, has this, after focusing on, you know, covered on quote-unquote hippies, on counterculture youth, um, Etc. They uh, when they discover their own readers, uh, you know, as, as they put it, Nixon was pursuing. Uh, I'm quoting pretty much directly. Nixon was assuming pursuing uh, not so much a southern strategy as a middle American strategy. In other words, we've made a very we, we've we've sort of exaggerated the southern strategy's impact with Nixon, which was real, and there was certainly uh, significant appeals to southern voters, and sometimes along racial lines, such as with uh, judicial nominations to the Supreme Court. But if you look at Nixon's overall strategy and you look at what he did as president and the groundwork he laid for effectively Ronald Reagan and then later George W. Bush and eventually Donald Trump, if you look at how the strategic playbook he wrote in what would later be called Reagan Democrats, it was much more blue-collar strategy than anything else. And it, it was Nixon seizing the breach between what were then F, the old left, if you will, and the new left. 
between old FDR Democrats, quote unquote, labor Democrats with, with the most iconic example, and college educated and the college educated new left, which would eventually soon actually form what we call McGovernites and would help McGovern win the Democratic nation, excuse me, nomination and rock um, at that time, rock the Democratic world. It was interesting. I mean, it was what, in 69 that Nixon, he didn't coin the term, but he kind of popularized it, this whole idea of the silent majority. Yes, that's right. He certainly popularized it. Uh, what's interesting about that and what we forget uh, is that it comes not that soon after what was called moratorium day, which was in mid October of 1969 and was really the great, I would argue is the greatest moment in the anti-war movement. It was when the anti-war movement appeared much more middle class, much more peaceful, reasonable, and, you know, really for the first time showed a bridge to, in fact, showed effort to bridge with the final majority, because of course the Vietnam war is not popular in 1969. Most Americans think it's a mistake by them. What happens is it's the biggest protest in American history to date. And then October, Nixon realizes he's in danger because he's losing his foil. And this silent majority speech, not long after, probably the most successful speech of his presidency, I think most Nixon biographers would agree, uh, he, coins, he coins a phrase, and, he, and it's, early, it's an early statement of his outreach to what you could call uh, both middle Americans or sort of old blue collar whites or the old and, and some, certainly the old left. What did traditional Republicans understand at that point about what Nixon was doing and the potential of what Nixon was doing? Because he may have seen this, but I'm not sure that, that Republicans in general did. Talk about that. Yeah, so that's interesting. We, we have to kind of nar- narrow in on what you mean by traditional Republicans. I've, one of his, one of Nixon's most significant advisors in his blue collar strategy as he's forming it is Pat Buchanan, who right. was a firebrand conservative then and had deeply felt principles on every issue you could name pretty much. And at the same time, the Republican establishment has mixed feelings about Richard Nixon as they would, we forget, about Ronald Reagan. Uh, Richard Nixon is working within a democratic era and he is, um, and what would happen on Nixon, Nixon was quote, little L, liberal, to a degree we could almost not imagine in modern-day Republicans. On Nixon's watch, the ERA passes, OSHA, uh, I mean, I could go on for, to a good extent, the first federally, federal affirmative action program, which notably impacts construction workers, the old left. Uh, and, and so, I mean, the, the establishment, you know, is not the Republican, the old guard, the old guard that sees any appeals to a forgotten man, because Nixon's using that lingo. He's adopting, he's co-opting F, uh, FDR's language, the forgotten man. There's certainly an old guard pushback to any appeals to the forgotten man and Nixon's appeals to labor, because they view, they to their core, they still view labor, big labor, and, you know, and, and the average laborer, and certainly, the, you know, what the, the iconography of the forgotten man, they view as anathema to what the Republican Party should be about, which of course, small government, and at that time, uh, you know, supporting uh, economic enterprise and certainly big business was associated deeply with the Republican Party of that age. One of the interesting things about Buchanan is that he kind of merged or provided maybe the intellectual underpinning at the time to merge traditional conservatism with the kind of populism that we're talking about. That's right. Uh, One reason, one key factor is that Pat Buchanan is Catholic. And a lot of the appeal to this old left, the old Democratic left, 
that came to sort of be epitomized by the or the best microcosm of what would happen was the you know the hard hat ride, which is why it's the center of the book, uh, uh, the center only a third of the book in general. As I'm talking about this backdrop and the aftermath of the college strategy, but what what the hard hat ride comes to become a microcosm of this great shift of the um, of the old left, or let's just call the uh, the, the blue collar Democrat at that time, to the new left is excuse me to the new Republican Party. Um, there's a few things you have to get some context on. One is that, you know, Buchanan saw it, and I quote this amazing memo where Buchanan, at the height of this blue-collar unrest that follows the hard hat riots and blue-collar activism that we forget today, which culminates in 150,000 longshoremen and construction workers and clerks protesting in downtown New York City, far larger than, for example, the 1967 uh, Pentagon protest anti-war protest that Norman Mailer immortalized, this immense protest that is totally forgotten by history. Uh, uh, Nixon writes a memo the next day to Nixon that these, quite frankly, are, quote, our people now. These, the Roosevelt New Deal is our people now. He saw it. He saw it in his gut. And I think one reason he saw it in his gut was his Catholic upbringing. He, because of that Catholic upbringing and, parochial, and his parochial schooling, I think he did have, it's fair to say he had sort of, as did Nixon, a gut instinct for the very voters Democrats had to, were Democrats, the Democratic base that was splintering away from the new left and the very voters Republicans had a chance to appeal to. And Nixon also had a, a gut sense while he was an exceptionally awkward pres- man and an exceptionally awkward president when he would talk to people one-on-one, he had a uh, unique gut feel for, if you quote unquote, the plain people in American life at that time. Yeah, it was interesting, though, with Buchanan that he saw things that that some of the other conservative Catholics didn't. He was able to see things. I mean, the the National Review crowd at the time, also Catholic, mostly, didn't quite see it the same way. I mean, Buchanan was was unfortunately prescient in that regard. Yeah, he was prescient. Uh, It's interesting. Why did William L. Buckley and his circle not? I think it's because they ultimately came to conservatism um, along its historic lines. Uh And Buchanan was, even as a young man, a conservative populist. And that last, that second word, populism, I think was was somewhat anathema to the National View crowd. But it's it's not that clean of a line, because William L. Buckley, in his effort to, you know, provoke the left at that time, the elite left, uh, you know, had that famous line about it, I'd rather pick, I, I'm paraphrasing, but I'd rather pick anyone out of a phone book than, you know, our government, lead, our leaders to run our country. That's a terrible paraphrase of his quote. Right, it was the, 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 first was seven, the first 700 people in the Boston Thank telephone you. directory. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to recall the quote. Uh, that's why it's always great to be interviewed by someone who's well-read. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so it's not a clean line, but it's fair to say that the National Review crowd, to use a, some, just to simplistically describe the, what was, had a breach to the, new, to the old right that Tapu Cannon did not feel married to. And, he, and as the new left, what, you know, which is kind of the counterculture, which is you know, rooted in the civil rights movement, but by that time, encompasses a, you know, 
massive amount of causes, you know, of change in American society. That new left, which was rooted at that time by then on college campuses and college-educated edu- white liberals, um, that new left, it's fair to say, was divorcing itself and ra- not only from the average American, who was certainly not at college-educated, but had different values, but I would say came to see the average American, and you know, I cite countless examples of this, uh, you know, as in an antagonistic sense, there's a great feeling of this feelings of comprehension. This gets wrapped up in much of the elite media. I talked about, for example, the reason I focus in on New York City in the late 60s and early 70s is because it's almost it's almost impossible for modern New Yorkers to conceive this who don't who don't remember this era, or for young people who just moved to New York now to understand. At that time, New York City in 1970 is a blue collar city. Majority are blue collar white. It is. They'd experienced the deindustrialization of America before the rest of America. It is, it has for years at that by 1970 experienced dramatic rise in crime, pollution. What we associate with mid 70s New York is already happening by the late 60s. Another issue forgotten, for example, the pulmonary emphysema rate rises in New York City 500% in the 60s. The murder rate in the 60s in New York City triples, even though convictions fall and the population remains the same. Uh, and of course, so in an almost unfathomable way, New York City at this time is a metaphor for the middle American squeeze. And what, what starts to happen, because of course in America itself in the 60s, violent crime rises 125%. Uh, there's, you know, there's upheaval that we, even in our traumatic, dramatic times, we can't conceive of today. There's upheaval, there's riots in about 250 cities in the late 60s. Um, you know, it, leading into the hard hat riot, and we can focus in on this uh, because of um, Cambo- the Cambodia incursion, the expansion of the war, and then the and then the tragedy of Kent State. You know, there's activists burn ROTC, facil- ROTC facilities from Rhode Island to Kentucky to Missouri. It is, it is the you know on Kent, when Kent State happens on May 4th, 1970, the Dow Jones suffers its worst daily loss since JFK's assassination. Again, we just it's just a much more traumatic time. And that traumatic time had a dramatic impact on the um, tectonics of American politics. And, you know, it's four days after Kent State that the hard hat riot occurs. We remember the former Kent State. We don't remember the hard hat riot. Most people don't. And yet it's that latter incident, the hard hat riot itself, that is, you know, a lesson of history and the microcosm for this immense shift that's occurring and um, between the late between the 60s and really the 80s where uh, the, Demo- the the Democratic Party is losing a key portion of the state eventually what 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 they would consider big labor but it's also the average laborer and blue collar whites in general and of course we saw that play out I mean two years before the hard hat riots or almost two years before with the Democratic convention in Chicago I mean that was was the precursor in so many ways that's right there's I, I in the book I the first uh, third of the book is is those are those precursors so in early in 1968, I, we, I tell the story of the Columbia occupation, which was also a precursor. And you have this moment where uh, Columbia University, the Ivy League School in Manhattan, in Manhattan, Upper West Side, border in Harlem, uh, they basically, without getting too deep into the politics of that moment, they, uh, students occupy one hall after another. There's 
it leads to a confrontation with police. And beneath that confrontation with police were issues of class that were not recognized by the new left of the time and barely, and certainly not the media yet. And, uh, and what this obsession of the time is the generation gap. But what's, you know, for example, as I note in my book, at that time in 68, half of all Brooklyn whites, which is most of Brooklyn, blue collar whites in Brooklyn, half of all Brooklyn was, had a relative um, or knew someone in the NYPD. Uh, it was, uh, it, it was it, the class divide and the subtext, I quote some poignant quotes of the moment, between those cops who would come down hard on the Columbia students and the Columbia students themselves and the antagonism of both groups becomes a pre shows what happens. It really does preview. And the yippies are the famous yippies are in Columbia at that moment when it all goes down previews what happened in Chicago when before the national press and some world press, the cops attack the, uh, the, anti the protesters and the media alike. Though, again, I tell that story because I don't think the, fair, the full story is as much as been written about Chicago 68. I, don't, I do think some, some aspects are forgotten about, you know, uh, you know the, these were not dovish, pacifist, anti-war activists. They were provoking the cops with the most vile language. They were throwing things at the cops. They were, uh, it, was a, it was a terrible moment for, the, for both the police, who should be held to a higher standard because they're agents of the state, just like today, and the, the anti-war ra radicals who were, um, and the, uh, the, the radical left at that time who was so angry at LBJ and later would have that same vehemence for Richard Nixon. And then that, of course, becomes a precursor for eventually what, what, we, um, what, we, what would become the hard hat riot. But, and, and even the drama of Kent State, where in 13 seconds, nine students are shot and four, four die. And it's a terrible moment in American life. And yet, Americans, the average American, would not blame more. The majority would blame the, the students at Kent State, even in that tragedy, uh, than the National Guardsmen. And, of course, the National Guardsmen, in my opinion, objectively were to blame. But that's not the point. The point is that's how much the campus activists left had lost the average American by that moment. And if you look at the through lines or the the thread between all these incidents, Americans saw whether it was the Columbia occupation or Chicago 68 or Kent State or the hard hat riots soon after. They, they, saw, they saw elite college kids attacking blue collar cops in Columbia. They saw elite college and upper class whites attacking blue collar cops at Chicago, provoking them. They didn't see their sons and daughters in the activists like the activists assumed and certainly like a so one famous New York Times columnist was doing at the time. They saw themselves more in the blue car cops, and national. They saw themselves in the National Guardsmen. They saw themselves in the construction workers at the hard, during the hard hat riot. In other words, the Americans, if you look at the point of the country, they didn't condone the violence, but they weren't willing to side with the victims of it, because in their minds, those victims were no longer innocent. And as America turns on the Vietnam War, uh, for example. They never turn on their concepts of America. So what I mean by that is that, well, let's just take these construction workers, which become a metaphor for all this, who, when they attack the uh, campus access, we'll just call them for shorthand hard hats and hippies. Uh, it was much more complicated than that. But when the hard hats attack the hippies that day during the hard hat riot in New York City at the very place where George Washington was inaugurated, uh, when this 
riot takes place, um, the construction workers and um, had uh, had basically lost had were not were described and in their activism was largely peaceful one weeks after were not pro war as they were often ascribed. If you looked at the data on blue collar wage view of the war, they didn't support the war either, and they were often less supportive than college-educated whites, such as with the Cambodian expansion. But what they were is they were against the war, and they were, but they were against the anti-war movement more. And that's the, what was misunderstood by the left of that time, the new left, the young left, because certainly many of these construction workers and blue-collar whites didn't vote for Nixon in 68, and many of them certainly at that time still considered themselves Democrats. The way in which parts of, of the apparatus of the Democratic Party embraced Gene McCarthy and later George McGovern was also part of it. I mean, the Democrats take a lot of blame in some of the things that they did as well. That's, that's right. Uh, what's fascinating is that um, is what let's just what happens with, um, for example, McGovern by 1972, which captures everything you're talking about, right? Uh, at the between 68 and 72, the Democratic Party made up for um, for small D Democratic gaps in its representation that were long overdue with women and most importantly African Americans, especially in the South. But in that effort to to do justice to those groups, they objectively overcompensated. And blue-collar whites and their representatives are pushed out of the Democratic delegations. And at the 1972 convention, the Democratic delegates are diverse by race, they're diverse by sex, and they are not diverse by class. They are, in fact, for example, four in ten Democratic delegates had graduate degrees, ten times the rate in the American public. And if you want an example of, and of course they were twice as wealthy as the average American, but if you want an example of how this matters, well, if you look at the actual platform, which is always very important, I think, for understanding a party in the moment, on jobs, when the Democratic platform gets the jobs, they start with a concern of white-collar workers, they quickly note farmers, and then they return to uh, the, the, the vehement concerns of young McGovernites. They talk about aerospace unemployment and other white-collar unemployment. It's almost a caricature. And and that's because the party had shifted, and they were they were understanding that the just that uh, women and uh, African Americans and uh, at that time certainly Puerto Rican they needed their voice to be heard. But in their overcompensation, they were forgetting that they were starting to um, uh, they were starting to ignore a large swath of the American public and 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 not represent. And then you saw a shift from towards identity politics away from. Um, economic justice politics, and one does not have to uh, be divorced from the other, but you start to see that separation in that moment. It's interesting that it was also a kind of perfect storm in this period of of class politics, racial politics, generational politics, and gender politics, all that came together at that moment. That's right. The, yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, what the, what's important is that to understand, if, you know, um, we have focused... Um, the story has the racial politics. That's most. That really the greatest of people is in the mid '60s and late '60s, and begin in 1948 when the Democrats uh, take up the civil rights platform. Gender politics are just beginning around 1970 and the early '70s, and the, 
the gay rights movement is not even understood outside New York City or San Francisco. It's still fringe at that time, even though uh, Stonewall was in 69. Um, what is not talked about and is dramatically ignored compared to its influence is this, uh, this class gap, this, this upheaval in, uh, in the class makeup of the Democratic coalition. Because what I focus in on John Lane, the New York City, John Lindsay's mayorality, who was an extremely popular liberal national figure at the time, liberal Republican, but um, liberal easy to understand according to our current party makeup. Uh, Lindsay beta tested what was then called a high-low coalition, upper-class whites and poor blacks, relatively poor blacks or lower uh, low class and blue-collar blacks and Puerto Ricans at the time. It was then called a high-low co- coalition, in quotes, before he beta test the McGovern coalition, which eventually becomes the Democratic coalition. And Mc- Lindsay could beta test that coalition in the late 60s because uh, New York City was very diverse and was, there, were, there was diverse enough for there to be some chance of that winning. And he ekes by... And this, this class upheaval um, is, is really sort of the under-discussed variable in uh, the turmoil that would uh, uh, really soon, if, soon after not only allow for Nixon's historic victory in 78, but Ronald Reagan's victories in 80 and 84 and, and onward into the, what allowed for, for Trump's presidency. Why do you think that was? What was it about class politics at this particular moment that, that A, was so powerful, but, but B, that nobody realized was happening to the degree that it was? Was it because class politics had really not played as significant a role in American historical politics for a long time? Why, why did everybody miss it? Well, I mean, one reason is this clearly compared to Western Europe, an, an allergy towards acknowledging class in American life. And that is, an, that is there's, there's very old historic reasons for that, right? Uh, you know, our revolution was uh, led by land-owning aristocracy. It wasn't led by uh, uh, the rabble in the streets, quote-unquote, like in the, with the French Revolution. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a nobility, a set nobility. We didn't have a Catholic church revolt against like in the, like in Western Europe. So, or in, in Europe, in much of Europe. So, uh, so we don't have certain institutions that helps explain why they see class more than Americans. And we also have race is a much stronger factor in, in much of American politics than in Europe. So race mingles with class in a way we don't notice. And we see the race often where class and race are both at play. So that's big picture. But two, by, by the late sixties, and 70s, let's, let's not ignore some obvious facts. One is, we now have a, the elite media is increasingly college educated. It's not the reporters of old. It's less becoming a trade and more a profession. And they, they, they sympathize tremendously with the anti-war movement and with campus activism because they came from that world. They often came from those colleges. As I quote, I quote, I, one quote in my book is that, you know, more Harvard students won a uh, Pulitzer Prize reporting on Vietnam, then died in Vietnam. Uh, and that's why I focus on Vietnam, because uh, it's, it's, it is the, even with Ken Burns's very long, very dramatic, and very well-done documentary recently on Vietnam, the little time spent on the class war over the war is such a disservice to American history 
And I will also note, since you brought up McCarthy, I, I spent a little time on Bobby Kennedy, who was working, not successfully yet, but trying to cobble a coalition of blacks and blue-collar whites. At the same time, you do have uh, Gene McCarthy appealing to what, you know, this new left, to college-educated whites. And, you know, you have, I quote this moment where you have, you know, McCarthy talking to college students and reminding them that, you know, quote, you know, that RFK appeals to the less intelligent, the less educated people in America. And, you know, I don't mean to fault them, McCarthy says to these college students. And, you know, Arthur Schlesinger heard about this quote and, and commented that McCarthy was declaring a, revo- a, quote, revolution against the proletariat, unquote. In other words, you very much have a new left and an elite media that ties that new left condescending and in some ways antagonistic towards middle Americans and blue collar whites. Some understandably, but often uh, not, uh, not object, not fairly. And it's part, and it's, and it's partly because um, the blue collar whites this time came to be, has come to be the face of, of, uh, of everything that progress is supposed to solve. And it's soon after 1970 that we of course have, for example, all in the family where Archie Bunker, the buffoonish and bigoted lead character comes to play every Hollywood and New York city stereotype of the average blue collar white man in American life. And, um, and it's really true. As I note in the book that, you know, blue collar whites lost the culture before they lost democratic party and, and really before they lost their voice in both parties. And, and finally, David, did it surprise you as you were working on this book and the story of the hard hat riots and this history that we've been talking about, how much of this is still powerfully with us 50 years after these riots? You know, it didn't because I chose this moment after Donald Trump won the presidency because it's the best microcosm for how it all began. And I wanted to convey to a shocked public and a public that was digesting this upheaval. And I would note an intelligentsia that often doesn't understand, an American intelligentsia that often does not understand the average American, ironically, um, that I, I wanted to show that we're still living with the rifts of, if I can say, yesterday and the upheaval of yesterday and those, the ramifications are being felt today. And it's also important, I wanted to write on this period of late 60s and early 70s because it, time permits one to touch on certain cultural touchstones that are more difficult in the moment. And, you know, it's, it's very easy also to forget how much, how vehement the hate was for Nixon at this time. And I know the fact that the Washington Post and the New York Times, which were paragons of free speech at the time, years after Nixon resigned with Watergate, uh, wouldn't publish ads for his memoir because it was going to, ang- so it would anger their readers so much. And that's stunning me that a major newspaper will not publish advertisements for a presidential memoir but it i I just use that as one of many examples that uh you know we there were worse divisions then and we both got over them and yet we we got past them but never got over them and and much of what we're living with today begins in that era and i think even for people who lived it um i'm not sure that they fully uh they they fully understood all that was taking place beneath their feet with political tectonics, partly because I don't think, um, and I guess most centrally, I don't think this class divide often between whites uh, was, uh, was sufficiently discussed or um, 
digested. And I think that, again, I, I returned to the Vietnam War being the most tragic example of, of, that, of that fissure. David Paul Kuhn, his book is The Hard Hat Riot, Nixon, New York City, and the Dawn of the Working Class Revolution. David, it's been a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was a real pleasure. You have a wonderful day. Thank you.